in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord of the name your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day, for this holy Sabbath and this time of rest, and that we, meet, that we may come together to worship you and spend time with you. Please clear our minds of all distraction and soften our hearts to your word and to Brian's message. Thank you for sending your only son to die for us. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. <coughs> Don't you turn that thing off or just like not move? <laughs> All right. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Exodus where Katie read this morning. Would it help if I turn this one off? Do we think? The monitor? No? In the past, we used to do that. I don't know if that helps or not. All right. We'll do our best. This morning, we are beginning a, a series on the, the Ten Commandments. And um, when I was reading the passage on my phone uh, this morning or yesterday, um, I didn't realize it was so long. So good job, Katie, reading a, a long passage this morning. We talk a lot at our church, and we always will talk a lot about God's grace and what God has done for us. Um, we believe here at the gathering that the gospel changes everything, that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ changes our lives forever. But, but with grace, um, maybe even but is not the right word, the gospel changes everything, and God, with his grace, gives us instructions on how he wants us to live our lives. 
Um, I've used this many times before, and I'll just use it one more time. Um, if you are at the beach and there's a 10-year-old child in the, in the water in a riptide, the lifeguard will not yell at him and teach him. He will always rescue him. But hopefully a good lifeguard would rescue the child and then teach the child on how to avoid that situation again. And so in a similar way, the gospel is about what God has done for us to rescue us, to help us. But God doesn't rescue us with his grace and then abandon us to our own ways. God does not rescue us with his grace and then abandon us. He rescues us and then teaches us how to live through his word. And so, starting today and for the next 10 Sundays, we'll look at each of the commandments and try to understand what they mean and how they fit into our lives. There is a, there's probably a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of um, assumptions about the Ten Commandments. And so hopefully we'll try to bring some clarity this morning to it. And so we'll do this um, in three ways. This sounds, sounds really goofy this morning to me. It sounds like my voice is in a tin can. All right. If you, can, uh, if you can hear me, hopefully it will work out okay. Or not. <laughs> this morning we'll look at it in three different ways. Number one, we will look at the announcement. We will look at the rescue. And then we will look at God's instructions. And so one of the things we have to notice, we have to pay attention to, is the, what we can call the preamble to the Ten Commandments, okay? So if you have a Bible, let's look at this. We probably already forgot it. We probably didn't even notice it. But here's what it says. Verse 20, chapter 1 says this, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. And I want to stop right there for one second. I am the Lord your God. Why are those words important? Why is that phrase important? God starts off with this announcement about who he is, and the source of these words, okay? And so we won't turn there this morning, but Leviticus chapter 19 gives us some really important insight. Leviticus 19 is this really unique chapter that has all of these kind of what we could call almost random commandments, ranging from agriculture to civic rules and laws to relationships to human sexuality, all of these kind of things. But one of the phrases that keeps appearing over and over and over again is this phrase, I am the Lord your God. So there will be a commandment about farming. And then it will say, I am the Lord your God. There will be a, a, a commandment about how we treat each other. I am the Lord your God. There's a commandment about human sexuality. I am the Lord your God. And what's interesting about Leviticus 19 is that it's not, it's not in this just precise order. It's almost like these disconnected thoughts, okay? And what I think the point of that is, that's sometimes what life is like. In the midst of a chaotic life sometimes, life gets chaotic sometimes. It's not always perfectly ordered. In the midst of our day-to-day -day life, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. So the Ten Commandments start out with a, this announcement that God wants to be the Lord of every area of our life. And then he starts out, he goes next, with the rescue. And this is tremendously important. 
And I can almost say this, if you don't get anything this morning, this is the most important thing I can say as far as the Ten Commandments and understanding them in the context. And that is this, God always rescues us with his grace before teaching us how to live. God always rescues us with his grace before giving us his law. <clears throat> you will see this throughout the Old Testament, throughout the whole Bible. Okay, and here, here it is here, even in the Old Testament. I am the Lord your God, and here is the rescue, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is God's grace. And we have to know this, that grace always comes before the law. Grace always precedes instructions. Res here's the same way. Rescue before rules. Okay? And if we get that wrong, we create a different kind of Christianity. The order is absolutely vital to understanding the gospel, to understanding how God wants us to live. <clears throat> If we get the order wrong, we turn this into a performance-type Christianity where we say we need to pull ourselves together, clean ourselves up, get our life figured out, follow these rules, and then God will like us. And that is ingrained within all of us. Okay? It is more deeply ingrained within us than we even realize. And that's why the gospel is such a radical message. The radical message of grace is what God has done for you just as you are today. <clears throat> we want to clean ourselves up. We want to make ourselves look presentable. We do it every morning. And okay, here's an example where it's a good thing, but I'm telling you how ingrained it is within us. None of us wake up in the morning and just walk out into public, right? I have before uh, at Starbucks and at my local Starbucks, they'll be like, you look kind of sleepy, right? And I'm like, well, it's because I've been awake for about a, three minutes, all right? Normally, now, because you're much more polished than I am maybe, you don't do that. But the point is this, it's deeply ingrained within all of us to make ourselves look presentable, not just physically, but morally. And it is the antithesis of the gospel. That God's grace, because of what Christ has done for you, you are fully accepted, not because of your performance record, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you. Genuine Christianity is grace-driven Christianity. Cannot say this enough over and over again that the rescue always comes before instructions. There's not a questionnaire. There's not a check-in of the sins you've done. We are all equally flawed, all equally in need of a rescue. And that's what God provides for us. If you have your Bible, turn back one page. Here's a beautiful, clear way of understanding this. Exodus chapter, nine, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That is a picture of grace. All throughout the book of Exodus, 
there is picture after picture after picture of God's grace. And so we have to understand this, that the Ten Commandments are written for people who first understand or who have first partaken of God's grace. The idea, I know that this is difficult, that you are freely accepted and loved because of what Jesus has done. No matter what you did last night, no matter what you thought about this morning, no matter how you treated somebody last week, God's grace is available to all people. Let's help, let's uh, pause for just a moment and try to understand how what's happening here in Exodus connects to the New Testament, okay? And this, there's lots of confusion about this, and so I'll just do my best to try to bring some clarity to this as we try to understand the relationship between grace and Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments. All right, so let's start by this. We know in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus said this. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now that's tremendously important. Okay? So this, here's, here's how we try to understand that. I'll say it one more time. Jesus said he came not to get rid of it or to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All right? Here's just a couple of ways how we can understand this. Number one, Jesus fulfills the law, number one, by keeping it perfectly. Jesus lived a life that none of us can live. He perfectly obeyed the law and lived life we cannot live. Number two, Jesus fulfills the law <clears throat> by dying on the cross. All right, and we need to think just for a minute about some of the implications of that and see how it affects us, okay? So number one, Jesus fulfills the law by living the life we cannot live. Number two, Jesus fulfills the law by dying on the cross. And when we think about what happened, okay, one of the most significant things that happens when Jesus dies on the cross is that the temple veil is torn in half. And that forever changes how we live our lives or how we worship today. Okay, so sometimes people will ask things like, why don't we follow all of these laws in the Old Testament, right? There's 600 plus laws in the Old Testament. Why do we follow some and ignore others? It's a great question. All right, so if somebody asks you that, what do we say? Well, we have to try to understand what Jesus means when he fulfilled the law, okay? And here, let me try to give you some help on this. When Jesus dies on the cross and the temple um, the temple uh, fabric is torn, the temple veil is torn, that does away with the sacrificial system. So we don't follow ceremonial laws anymore. We don't do animal sacrifices anymore. We don't have priests anymore. I'm not a priest. You don't have to come and talk to me. When Jesus dies on the cross and the veil is torn, we are all called the priesthood. And so we don't have to follow these specific laws anymore because of what Jesus Christ did. Okay, so we don't follow ceremonial laws because Jesus was the final, ultimate sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, how Jesus fulfills the law. That's why we don't do those types of things anymore. Number two, the other thing we don't do, or we notice, is that the, the punishment or the consequences for sin in the Old Testament 
are very different today. Okay? And we've probably thought about this, right? I think it's there's some really radical things that we'd read in the Old Testament. You'd be like, wow, I'm so glad we don't follow this because I would not have lived as a teenage boy because I talked back to my dad and I would have had some like really severe punishment. Right? <clears throat> we don't follow the civic laws anymore because Jesus dies on the cross and the church today is not a nation state. Okay? In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was a nation state and God would set laws on this nation to preserve and protect its identity. Today, the church is a multi-ethnic community of believers. We are not a Malibu gathering state here. We are a part of a community of people all throughout the world. So the civic laws of the Old Testament do not affect us. You guys are being good students so far. Hopefully you're hanging with us here. All right, so Jesus came to fulfill the law. There are parts of the Old Testament that we still follow, though. So we don't follow the ceremonial laws. We don't follow the civic laws. But we do pay deep attention to the moral laws. The moral laws of the Old Testament that we still find in the New Testament. Okay, so... God establishes our status in him through his grace. We have been rescued by his grace. Jesus has fulfilled the law. And now he wants to teach us how to live. He wants to instruct us. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't rescue us and say, hey, just go live life however you want. Okay? All right, let's, uh, let's do this to try to help bring some deeper understanding to this and how important this is. And let's go back to the Garden of Eden and understand how the word not actually brings freedom. One of the things we see in the, in the Ten Commandments is this word no or not, not this, not this, not this, and trying to understand how God's instructions for us are actually to give us freedom so we can all flourish. So the rescue happens. Now I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to live so you can have freedom and peace and creativity and joy life. Okay, so let's go back to the Old Testament for one second. Excuse me, back to Genesis for one minute. And let's see where the law is in Genesis. We know the story of Adam and Eve, and the law is this. Don't do one thing. Okay, so can we show my, my first little apple? Do we have the apple of the, the thing I emailed you? Okay, that, I, I sent you two. You didn't get the first one? No? Okay. All right. Well, we're jumping ahead. All right. We can use our pretend apple. All right. So here's the rule. The law is this. One apple. You can't eat it. There is, there is one thing you cannot do. This is, this is the benefit of a not commandment. So not this one thing, but any of those. Okay? Do we have it? Hey, he is so fast. Good job, Jesse. All right, so here is our little picture image. You can't have that. Okay, that is the only thing you cannot have, but you are free to have any of that. Okay, and so this is, the point of this is to help us understand that the Ten Commandments, or that the law is not given to restrict. We think that. Don't tell me I can't do that. 
We're not understanding clearly what the law is saying. One negative command opens up the door for you to choose whatever fruit you want. It's your choice. Pick one. So we need to understand that God rescues with us with his grace, and then he wants to teach us how to live by saying no to some things, but opening up freedom to many other things. All right? Thank you, Jesse. hope that helps. <laughs> All right. So let's look at Let's look at this first commandment for a few moments. The commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment. Here's how we can try to understand this or wrap our minds around this. The first commandment is to exclusively follow the one true God in a city with many imposter gods. The first commandment is to exclusively follow the one true God in a city or in a culture with many imposter gods. While we are separated by time, by thousands of years, there are still consistent truths that were applicable to the nation of Israel that still apply to us today. We live in a time when there are many things that want to grab a hold and function as a God in our lives. And so we want to pause for just a minute and think about this idea of imposter gods. And I know, I understand that this is not, this is not something that gets people excited, this idea of exclusivity, that God wants to be the center of your life, that God is a jealous God, that God is jealous for your attention, that he wants to function at the center of your life. And as we wrestle with this, this tremendously important first commandment that God instructs us on how he wants us to live, that there are so many things that we live with in our area that function as false idols, or as I'm calling them this morning, imposter gods. Okay, so let's just think through this a little bit. Number one, imposter gods are different for all of us. Depending on where you were raised, who your parents were, your personality, your education, your gender, they can be different for us all. And so there is not just one little short list of things that will function as an imposter god in our life because they are different for us all. But what we can do is try to just Think carefully this way. Here's a short definition of an imposter God. An imposter God is anything in your life that is more important to you than God. An imposter God is anything in your life that is more important to you than God. And what can happen with imposter gods is they can kidnap us and grab a hold of us without us even being aware of it. The danger of imposter gods is that sometimes they've kidnapped us and we don't even know it. We all have things in our lives. We all, we, we all if you were to ask me, okay, well, Brian, what are, what are things in your life that might be working as an imposter God in your life? I could come up with a few where if I'm not careful, they can become more important to me than my relationship with God. 
And for me, my, what, my thing could easily be my family. And that's a good thing that I love my family and care for them. But they are never to take the place of God in my life. It's different for everybody. I had a, a, somebody come up to me just a couple, the other two days ago. And I was sitting there with a friend. And um, it was at my teacher retreat. We had a, a teacher retreat. And a guy came up to me and said to us both, you guys just work all the time. And, it, and honestly, like my struggle in my, deep in my soul is the idea of laziness. Like I feel like I can, and maybe you think that's just foolish because if you know my life, but I'm just being honest. There are times when I feel like I can just be lazy by serving myself and doing what I want to do. But imposter gods, sometimes they're things you don't even know are part of your life. That's why we need community. That's why we need each other to lovingly point out things to each other in the most gentle, humble, loving way that this thing might be functioning as a God in your life. There's a really interesting story, and I don't remember all the details, but if you are, uh, I think you have to be a little bit older than me, but there's a story. I think her name, uh, I think her name was Patty Hurst, who was kidnapped. And she, it got to the point where she was kidnapped, but because of what the kidnappers had done to her, she began to participate with them. In fact, she, I think she was even convicted of a crime or helped rob a bank or something like that. Okay, it's a really interesting story to think about for a minute. She's kidnapped. And then as time goes on, she becomes friends with the kidnappers. It's relevant for us to think about for a moment. Are there things in your life that are functioning as God in your life? Most likely, they're good things. That's more important to you than God. And for men, there, there's a, kind of the normal list. Okay, Work. For some men, you've been taken hostage by work and all you do is work. And the consequences of that is that your family feels like they're left out. For women, I'll have to talk to my wife because <laughs> I'm not one. But we all have, a, we all have, here's the point, we all have our own things. And the point for right now just is to think about our own lives and ask the press, pressing and probing questions that is there something in your life that's taking the place of God? And here's what they do. If an imposter God has a control of your life, here's what they do. Number one, they lie to you. Imposter gods will always lie to you. They will enslave you. They will condemn you. And one of the things that happens within church culture is the imposter god becomes things like morality, sound doctrine, the Bible, where we are preoccupied with rules and behavior and outward things, and grace begins to take a back seat. So that's why we always focus on the rescue of what God has done for us first. If you have an imposter God in your life, functioning in your life, what do we do with it? I came across um, uh, a Tim Keller sermon on this that helped me, okay? And I think on the title... Jimmy, what's the title of the sermon? I think, I, is it there on the side? Only God or God only? Yeah, 
All right. God only. God only. All right, here's why we did that. Here's our little help. We're going to, if you have a pen or pencil and you'd like to write things down, the German word for only is the word nur, N-U-R. That was my horrible German accent. All right, and here's how we deal with idols. How do we deal with imposter gods? Okay, when the first commandment is this, there's only one true God. In a land of many gods, worship only the one true God. And if there is an imposter God that's got control of you, here's how we handle this. Number one, we name it. You have to be able to identify what's actually controlling your life. You have to name it. Number two, you have to unmask it. You have to be able to pull off the mask of this thing that's functioning in your life as a God and see where it will literally take you. This is what wisdom does. You can say, wisdom does this. The choices I'm making today, how will they affect me in the future? If this thing that's functioning as a God, this thing we call peace, where you will make peace with no matter what, that you cannot resolve conflict and you just run for the hills whenever there's a conflict, and I'm going to preserve peace at all times. I'm never going to deal with my conflicts. When you unmask it, it says this. Where is this going to lead me to in my life? What does the future look like? Well, it's going to look like you always, you'll be changing friends every year, every six months, because every person, every friend, eventually has some form of conflict. You have to learn how to resolve your conflicts the right way. So number one, here's our, our acronym. You have to be able to name it. Think carefully in your own life. They are different for us all. What could be an imposter God in your life? Number two, you have to be able to unmask it and see the control it has over you and where it will lead. And then our R is you have to learn to rejoice over something that is more beautiful, and that is Jesus Christ. You cannot just say, I'm just going to stop this. You have to replace something that is more meaningful to you. Imposter gods are things in our life that always look attractive. You can think about this for a moment. The things you like to do in your free time, that can be an imposter god. They're almost always good things that God has given us that are taking the place of God in our life. It can be related to money. An imposter God can function in two different ways with money. We view money as a way to buy things. Always want to buy more things, right? We all have a natural disposition towards money. You're either a spender or you're a saver. And an imposter God can function in your life in two ways with money. Spend, 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 buy, buy, buy. Or save, 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 hoard, 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 save, save, save. And that is my safety. I'm secure. I'm happy. If I have X amount of dollars in the bank account, then I have peace. That's functioning as your God. If you always have to buy new things, it's amazing. This is just deep within us. We're dealing right now with this in, in our family with surfboards, right? You get a new surfboard, and here's what happens in my family. We bring it in the house. It's nice. It's neat. It's fun. It's cool. We take care of it. For a week. And then it ends out in the dirt pile with the ding in it. And there the pile just keeps growing. 
of surfboards until we get a new one. And then it's fun. It's in the house. We take care of it. And then it gets a ding and it goes back on the pile. There's my family. Not hoarders, but buying new things all the time, right? So that's our challenge. We all have challenges in our lives. We all have different idols. Okay? All right, so the, the command is this. In a land with many false gods, in a land with many false idols, imposter gods, how do we do this? How do we live out this first command? The command is this. God wants an exclusive place in our lives. All right? Number one, it starts with a choice. There just is a choice part of this. Okay? And this is where it happens, where it relates to like a dating or marriage relationship. At some point, hopefully, if you're a single guy here, you're going to make a choice. I want to marry this woman. And you have to make it happen. You are in control. When Karen and I were dating, or when I should say when I first met her, and we first talked, and I left after the first talk, it's the first time in my life where I was like, I want her. Okay? And it wasn't like, now do I just sit around and hopefully she calls me? No. Right? You have to make a choice and you make it happen. Right? So this is back in the days when you have like the white pages and yellow pages. And, and my first strike, I called the, I called the pizza place. Right? So Karen and I had known each other a little bit before uh, in college years, but there was about a five-year gap or so between college and when we met for the second time. I called the pizza place. Wrong number. I'm not giving up. I'm making a choice. I want to figure out who this girl is. So I'm going to do it. You have to make a choice in the, with the attitude of this. I live in the midst of imposter gods that want me, that want to control me. But I'm going to make a choice to serve the one true God. Here is a great passage. If you have your Bible, turn for just a minute, a couple books to Joshua chapter 24. You've heard this before maybe. Uh, Joshua Judges. Just turn forward. Uh, Joshua 24. <clears throat> Joshua 24 verse 14 says this. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if, and if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's a choice to be made. In Joshua's time, there's a land of many gods. And they made a choice. We are going to serve the one true God. Number two, in order to understand and live out the first commandment, it requires radical exclusivity. It is. It's a radical idea to say, God, I belong to you alone. We have no problem with this mindset with our spouses, right? We believe in this at the Malibu Gathering and the exclusivity of faithfulness to our spouses. Our spouses, um, in, a, in a healthy way, have a, uh, a healthy jealousy. And I know when I use that word, we probably always think of it in a negative way. 
and it is if I'm talking about envy. But I guarantee you this, if my wife started working 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day, I would be jealous for her. Why? Because I actually enjoy being with my wife. I enjoy her company. That's a healthy thing. That's the right kind of thing. And if it was vice versa, if I started working crazy hours, she's going to be jealous because we enjoy being together. There is an exclusivity. We don't go, I don't, I don't, she doesn't, we don't flirt with people of the op opposite gender. I am exclusively my wife's. It's a picture here of what God wants. It's not God plus a little bit of money, God plus a little bit of free time, God plus what I want, right? It is so natural if we have two little balls of clay to mix my will, my agenda, and make it into one ball so it's always safe and easy and comfortable. It's not God and something else. That's why the commandment is clear. It is a radical truth. It's a radical exclusivity that God functions at the center of your life. Next, this commandment expects commitment. That God is instructing us. He is rescuing us. Now he's teaching us to how he wants us to live. God desires a long-term commitment with you. The heart behind this is that God desires intimacy with you, that God desires a friendship with you, that he loves you and wants to spend time with you. What, could pay, what might be happening, even for some right now, is this idea, this mindset, that this isn't setting right. And if that's the case, then I'm not communicating the heart or the motive behind it, that God loves you so much that he wants to be with you. In the same way, if you've dated somebody, if you're married, and how you just you love to be with that person, that's what God wants. In that same way, when you're dating, you get that just like that happy feeling, right? Just like you're with the person. We have a, a couple at my school, newly married, and it's just so fun to watch them. <laughs> they just want to be near each other. It's like touching, walking near each other, and so like want to brush shoulders with a person, and just like that is a beautiful thing. That is what God wants. He just wants you. He wants to enjoy you. He wants to go deeper with you. He wants all of you. Last, to live out this first command, the affections of our heart need to be regularly renewed. The affections of our heart need to be regularly renewed. Listen, here's a reason. There's a reason why and there's a couple of married couples in our church that have been very helpful for me with this. The idea of renewing the affections of your spouse. You have to. Right? I guarantee that fun newlywed walking by shoulder rubbing little tingly fun thing, that doesn't last forever, right? You have to renew that. that doesn't, that's not how life works. You naturally grow cold. You, can natu you naturally grow away from your spouse unless you diligently and work hard at renewing the affections of your heart for that spouse. That means stirring up the emotions. We need to understand that God made us emotional beings to stir the emotions of our heart to love Jesus. 
and we regularly need to do that. Otherwise, the first command will just be this overbearing law thing trying to press upon you more rules. And that is not the point at all. The point is that God loves you sincerely, wholly, completely, just as you are, and he wants that with you. Just really fast, I just want to show you a quick case study of what this looks like in real life. Okay, turn to Daniel for just a moment. This idea of an exclusivity with God. Just for just a moment, Daniel chapter 3. And then we'll, we're going to worship here just for a second. The exclusivity of God in your life in a culture with imposter gods is going to set you out as different. Okay? It will make you different. If God is functioning at the center of your life, it will work itself out in your life in a way that will show you are different. Okay? And here's how we can uh, try to understand this just really quick. So Daniel chapter 3 is the story of um, Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the, the law is this. Okay? Here is the law that says, you must bow down and worship the imposter God. Whenever you hear the trumpets play or the band or the, the, the music starts playing, wherever you are in the city square, you must just stop and pledge your allegiance to the imposter God. Okay? So think about this just for a minute. If the imposter God is work, if the imposter God is relationships, if the imposter God is acceptance, if it's money, whatever thing it might be, if it's physical looks for you, if that's the thing that functions as the most important thing in your life, this imposter God will call upon you to bow down and worship at random times in your life when you least expect it. This imposter God might be food at the random time when you're hungry and you just overdo it and you're like, oh, this thing has a control of me more than I even realized. Number one, if we're going to live out this first commandment, if we're going to live out this idea that God wants to be the center of our lives, it will create pressure in your life. When you live, or when we lived out together, our lives in a world that's dominated and controlled by imposter gods, it will create pressure in your life. You'll get, a, you'll get, you'll get beat up sometimes. And here's what I mean. For example, if you, um, if you own your own business, and you're making a go of it, and your competitors are being dishonest, not playing by the rules, they charge way less, they're getting the jobs and you're not, because their imposter God is money, and you're saying, I don't want to live this way, I want God to be the center of my life. That's pressure. That's real pressure. When you're competing, if, if, you, if you work in an office, when you're competing against other people, other employees in your office, and they're taking shortcuts, and they're making the deals happen, and the imposter God there is climbing the ladder, that creates pressure. If you're in law school, and they rank you, and the imposter God is success at any cost, and you're taking advantage or cheating on schoolwork, that's pressure. 
as far as who's actually functioning in your life as the, as the center of your life. One of the things we learn here from the story, <clears throat> I just want to read one thing that's just it's tremendously important. Um, actually, I won't read this morning. I'll just tell you for a safe time because I'm going long a little bit. Imposter gods can create pressure. Imposter gods can create a, a, a climate or an environment of suffering for us. It's not always just easy. And we see this here with the story of Daniel and his friends where they end up, they say this. Here's what they say. King Nebuchadnezzar, we belong to God. And we believe that God will rescue us if you throw us in the fire. But if he doesn't, one of the most profound things in the Bible, but if he doesn't, we will choose to follow you still, God. We will not bow down. That's pressure in this world to live a life where God is at the center of our lives. And it might create suffering. It might create suffering. We don't always get what we want when God is at the center of our lives. There is much more we can say this morning, but I'm going to stop here because we're going to have communion and we're going to worship. But I just want to say this. Again, we have to understand this. The commandments are always seen in the context of a rescue. The Ten Commandments and the New Testament understanding of them never change your status. The only thing that will change your status before God is His grace is Him coming and rescuing you on His wings as an eagle who flies in and rescues. And then He says, I want to teach you how to live. Start with this. Start with me at the center of your life. Start with me in this radical commitment, this radical choice that no matter what, I'm going to function with you at the center of my life. And that I need to regularly renew myself because I am so distracted. Listen, here's the reality. I am just as distracted as any of you to have an, an imposter God take control of my life. We are all equal. That's why we need the gospel regularly renewed in our lives and why we need each other to live out our days together. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I pray that as we continue this morning and we worship, I pray that we would use this time to renew the affections of our heart that the emotions of our heart would be stirred to see how beautiful you are, how much you love us, how much you desire intimacy with us, how much you desire friendship with us. We understand that the gospel changes everything and you make all things new. Father, I pray this morning that everyone who is here would experience your freedom, that they would understand how much they are loved by you, no matter what they have done in their past. Father, press that truth into our hearts this morning. We want to rejoice and say thank you for rescuing us. And now we want to live our life following you. With this we say we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. <clears throat>